Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Randy Franz as he shares this week's message. And how great is our God? How great is our Father in heaven? I mean, come on. How great is he? Yeah. Let's actually make that a declaration. How great he is. He is he is far far greater than you and I can even understand. That's how great he is. He is far far greater than you and I can even ever conceive. Even in our craziest I think most outlandish uh, imagination. We can never come close to conjuring up a God as great as the, the true creator of the universe. And when we think of this, when we consider this, uh, it should strike even more awe in you and I that this unimaginably great God would put himself into words for us to know him. And this is what the Bible is. It is knowing him. It is more than just words on a page. It is the word, capital W. Remember John 1, in the beginning was the word, capital W, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And this word, capital W, is, the, is rendered in Greek as logos, meaning the power and creative unifying force of the universe, the force by which the heavens and the earth were created and all things are held together. And this word is a person, if you will, the person being the eternal Son of God. It is he who speaks into existence. In fact, nothing is unless he speaks it. And also the word is God's revelation to us. It is God using, in our day, finite human language to bring us into the knowledge of an infinite, holy, perfect, pure spirit. God the Father even refers to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, as the word in John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then a few verses later, he says, the word was made flesh. And so this God, capital G, who is outside of time, he speaks. And he speaks not just to other spirits or spirit beings or angels or this, in the spiritual realm, realm. He speaks to us. He uses speech. He spoke the universe into existence. And he dares to stoop to our level, as it were, with words so that we might grasp even a measure of his greatness. And then he explains to us that this word is eternal. Well, Jesus Christ is eternal, and he is the word. He preserves his speech, his word, the Bible, for eternity. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, he says in Luke. And so when you hold the book or the app uh, that you have, and when you open it, and when you read these words, 
Just consider how magnificent this is. When we do this, we are gazing into eternity past and eternity future and the present all at the same time when we take in God's word. Is there anything else that enables us to do this? And so in the Bible, in this word, the book of John chapter 17 probably comes closer than any chapter in the Bible to showing us the true greatness of our God. It's a prayer. It's a prayer. The whole chapter is a prayer. Nicole read that prayer to us, all 26 verses. It's a prayer from the Son to the Father, the only Son of God to God the Father. And Jesus prays this prayer immediately after his final instructions to his disciples there during the Last Supper and afterward. And then this comes immediately before his arrest and his crucifixion. I dare say it's the most profound glimpse into the throne of God that is given to us. It's an extended communion between God the Son and God the Father as Jesus pours out his heart to his Father. And we are the fortunate recipients of this wonderful display that shows Jesus' most essential desires. Augustine, one of the most esteemed fathers of the early church, said of the 17th chapter of John, he said, it is easiest in regard to words, but most profound in regard to ideas. This is well put. For the words are actually rather simple. They're pretty basic. They're almost elementary. But together, they carry the weight of eternity. And that's not an exaggeration. We can only begin to touch the edges of their meaning. John MacArthur said of John 17, plain words, yet incomparable majesty. Simple words, yet profound mystery. And others throughout Christian history have attempted to give John 17 its appropriate honor, but human language, in this sense, almost seems inadequate to do so. Here are a few of their attempts. Martin Luther, he said, it sounds so honest, so simple, it is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. English theologian Matthew Henry said, it is the most remarkable prayer following the most full and consoling discourse ever uttered on the earth. And a great theologian during the Reformation, Philip Melanchthon, he gave the final lecture of his life on this prayer. He said, there is no voice which has ever been heard, neither in heaven nor in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. Scottish preacher John Knox, he was on his deathbed, and he asked for certain passages to be read to him from the Psalms and from the book of Isaiah. But most of all, he said, please read John 17, because that is the place where I first cast my anchor. John 17 was how God 
is what God used to bring John Knox to salvation. J. Vernon McGee, a prominent pastor in Southern California in the 1950s and 1960s, he said just, I feel wholly and totally inadequate to deal with this prayer. I get it. It is hard to overstate the meaning of John 17, because how do we overstate the longings of the Son of God shared with his Father and then bared for all of us to see? This is enormous. It's really, it's the Trinity on display, bringing forth what was and what is foremost in the mind of Jesus, this Jesus through whom all things are made, through whom all things exist, and through whom all things are upheld. This really is the true Lord's Prayer. And if you're going to say, well, mm, what about that Lord's Prayer that we know, you know, the Our Father, Matthew 6, that's a prayer that Jesus teaches the disciples to pray. That is our prayer, the model for us. Maybe it should be re renamed our prayer or the disciples' prayer. Um, but we know it's not Jesus' model prayer because in it, what do we pray? We pray, please forgive us for our sins. Jesus does not have any sin. He needs no forgiveness. So the real true Lord's Prayer is John 17, and it's personal. It's Jesus interceding for us during this prayer. And I would say it even shows what Jesus, the kind of interceding that Jesus does for us at all times. Uh, it's astounding. And next week we'll delve a little more deeply into Jesus' role as an intercessor and, and mediator. Um, but it, it's a prayer that has endless depth. It's not his only prayer that's recorded. We have other brief prayers. They're brief and short, but this is by far the, the longest and the most consequential of, of all, and we benefit by re receiving its, its deep uh, and rich truths. So, at the top of Jesus' mind in this prayer is glory, and that glory is for himself, for his Father, and also for his people, us. And that's for all time. We'll come to see that this is for all time. He's not praying for just one point in time at that point. No, this is for all time. And this theme of glory, this is embedded throughout the prayer, uh, as Nicole read for us from beginning to end. Uh, it's the theme of, of glory and glory. And that is especially prominent in the first five verses. And so that's what we're going to focus on today, the first five verses. Now, overall, Jesus' prayer divides into three parts. Uh, the first five verses uh, are Jesus' prayer for himself, and then the second part is Jesus' prayer for his disciples in, in verses 6 through 19, and then the third part is Jesus' prayer for believers, uh, New Testament believer, believers for all time, those yet to come 
those past, present, and future for all time uh, for verses 20 through 26. And so let's zero in on those first five verses. It should be up on the monitor. Hopefully you can read it. It looks pretty small. Starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, <clears throat> the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you immensely for your word, for by it we know you, and you have humbled yourself so that we may come to know you. Father, help us to rightly divide your word, to give it due honor, to give you due honor. We thank you that it is eternal. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, that it, it shows us who you are and also shows us who we are. So, Father, would you help us to be faithful to your word? Lord, would it be your words that are sung and preached and, and declared this morning? We thank you. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so this passage starts out by referring to what has just come before. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words. What words is he talking about? <clears throat> it's the words from chapters 13 and 16, 13 through 16. Jesus is giving his final instructions to his apostles before he's arrested and crucified. He is coaching them, as it were, for the hours and the days ahead uh, and the years ahead. He's, he's giving them their marching orders, so to speak, for life without him in their midst, or more accurately, without Jesus walking in the flesh among them. And much of his time, much of his teaching is in the form of warnings. Uh, he knows they will face heavy, heavy persecution in the days to come. In fact, chapter 16 ends with these words from Jesus to his apostles. In the world, you will have tribulation. He's warning them very directly. But look what he says next. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So we have warning followed by the victory, tribulation followed by exaltation, and death followed by life. We have humiliation followed by glory. This contrast of a suffering Savior is such a unique spiritual truth. For what hero conquers by being humiliated and dying in our way of thinking, dying and death spells defeat, does it not? We say somebody lost their battle with cancer. We consider that losing. Uh, or we, somebody is overcome by this or that. This is, the, this is our way of thinking. This is the human way of thinking. Jesus' ways, death, 
is how he overcomes the sin of the world. He took all of sin and he died on a cross. However, all of sin could not keep him dead, as we say. He took it to a grave and he buried it and then he rose again three days later with new everlasting life. In our ways, we try to avoid death at all costs because we think of it as the ultimate defeat. But in Jesus' ways, he embraced this paradox of turning death into life. His physical death defeated spiritual death. He used that death to triumph over it by coming back to life. And he shows us that this is the way through physical death is to know him who guarantees life on the other side. And that's why he says to his followers, take heart. In other words, don't worry. I win, and you win in me. What an astonishing thing. Just astonishing. For if we're honest, our physical death is disturbing. It's a harrowing thing that awaits us. Again, if we're honest, it probably scares the daylights out of us if we think on it too too much. But knowing Jesus has overcome this and that he promises or guarantees the same victory for you and I, this gives us the ultimate assurance that we can have. And it's why we can live our lives with supreme peace and purpose and joy, even as these bodies of ours wear out and we know what the end thereof is, we can have that peace and we can have that assurance and purpose because we know our Savior lives and he gives us that same victory. He will bring us to him. We will pass through this death and be reunited with him. What joy, what unworldly, unbending, mind-bending joy. Uh, It's hard to... It's hard to put it into words. So, Jesus has been warning his disciples about the hardships to come. He's been telling them about his perfect plan to give them the victory of eternal life. And then he looks up to his Father and he launches into prayer. The first thing he says in verse 1 of chapter 17, Father, the hour has come. What is this hour? This is the moment he came to earth for, to redeem his people from the law of sin and death, to atone for sin and secure everlasting life. This hour literally is his death on the cross, his subsequent burial, his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension back to his father's side in heaven. If you'll recall, Jesus, throughout his three years of earthly ministry, He makes a point to say many times that his hour had not come. We see that in the wedding at Cana. Uh, The wine runs out. Jesus' mother tells him about it. And he says in John 2, 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. A little later, his brothers from his household urged Jesus to go to an annual Jewish feast in Judea, basically to show off who he is his miracles, so everyone will know him. And many Jews, though, were seeking to kill him. And so he says to his brothers, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. 
And yet, what does he do? Later, he actually does go up to the feast. He goes up privately, even begins to teach in the temple, and many Jews there, the ones who are seeking to arrest him and kill him, they want him gone because they consider his teaching blasphemous. John 7, 29 says, But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then Jesus speaks again in another setting, and these people want to arrest him too. That was pretty common. But they don't arrest him. And why not? Because, John 8, 20 tells us, his hour had not yet come. And so Jesus is in complete control. He is working out every detail of his Father's plan, And that plan was set forth from before the foundation of the world. And so we see even in this that he is sovereign. He is in control. He is precise. He knows precisely when he must go to the cross. He knows exactly when it is to happen. And he knows why. And he knows that this is the path to glory for his father, himself, and his people. This is the path. And it will not unfold one minute sooner than has been ordained. And so here we are in chapter 17. And Jesus seizes the moment. It's just after the Last Supper. He's with them just before they walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to be betrayed and arrested. And his disciples are near him so they can hear him as he looks up and he prays, Father, The hour has come. It's time to go to the cross. It's time to show all of creation the deep love of God displayed as he takes the punishment for their sin and our sin as well. And then Jesus continues, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And just a quick note on the word glory. There's in connection with God, there are kind of two general main senses of glory uh, used in the Bible. One has to do with the bright light that shines around, the aura that shines from God's presence. Um, This is when he reveals himself in creation, uh, such as when he announced Jesus' birth to the shepherds in the field. If you recall, the glory of the Lord shone around them. We see the same type of glory displayed at the transfiguration of Christ, in Matthew 17, and also in the heavenly city yet to come, uh, as described in Revelation, said the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God is its light and its lamp is the Lamb. The other sense of glory is the enormous honor or excellent reputation that is deserved, one's deserved reputation or honor that is beyond And this is the type of glory found in this passage in John 17. So just keep that, keep this in mind. So by his death on the cross, Jesus receives the honor or glory due his name. Generations after generations of believers worship him. They adore him. And they know that their sin is atoned for because Jesus willingly suffered the brutality of death on a cross for them. For their sake, for our sake, he satisfied the wrath of the Father. For that alone, Jesus' worth and value is incomparable. 
And this is how Jesus is glorified at the cross. And having been glorified, Jesus brings many people to glory with him. At the cross, Jesus glorifies not only himself, but also his Father. And how? Well, the Father's plan is to save his people from the penalty of their sin. His plan is out of pure love for his people. And Jesus, being perfectly obedient and successful, he shows the depth of the Father, the depth of the love that the Father has for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus shows the depth of that love at the cross. At the cross, also, the Father keeps his promises. One of his promises is that sin leads to death. This clearly it does. And justice means that sin must be punished. His other promise, aside from that sin leads to death, his other promise is to give mercy. His promise is to send a redeemer, one who will stand in our place to pay the the price for sin and give new life. And so this is what what is accomplished at the cross as well in the subsequent resurrection of Christ. And this is how Jesus glorifies the Father. So Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him, not so Jesus can boast about himself, but so that his people will be saved. And Jesus deserves this glory because it was his from the beginning, long before he lowered himself to being a human. Look at verse 5. Jesus prays, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This glory that the Father and Son share along with the Holy Spirit, it's theirs forever. It was theirs before time began, and it will be there for eternity. And so Jesus is simply praying in John 17 what is rightly his. He's the sovereign Lord of all the universe. All things live and move and have their being because of him. He's the perfect sacrifice for sin, the one mediator between God and man, the perfect son who obeys perfectly. He is the spotless lamb of God. Glory is rightly due to him. Now, there is a thought that Jesus may be selfish in praying for glory for himself. And yet, all we have to do is look at the rest of verse 1, if you're in your Bibles there. 17.1, Jesus is saying, what is he saying this for? Look at the second part of this verse. He's saying it, so the Son may glorify you. That's why he is praying it. This echoes exactly what Jesus says at the beginning of the Passion Week as he's coming into Jerusalem, as he's considering his own soon death on the cross. He says in John 12, For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And the Father responds clearly, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. John MacArthur says of this, this is the remarkable reality of the Trinity. The Son seeks to be glorified so that he can glorify the Father. 
The Father is glorified in the humiliation and obedience of the Son. The Holy Spirit gives glory to Christ. Christ gives glory to the Father. The Father gives glory to the Son. The perfections, the absolute holy perfections of the Trinity give to us a perfect demonstration of the utter absence of any self-seeking whatsoever, as if they would pit each other against each other. The Son receives honor. The Father receives honor. The Spirit receives honor. The Spirit gives honor to the Son. The Son passes honor to the Father, and the Father passes it back. What a beautiful picture of our triune God and His unity. Now, you might say, well, if Jesus is God, and He already has this glory, and He knows He will be glorified, why does He have to pray to His Father for this glory? Well, if you remember, Jesus left the glory of His Father's side to become a man. And in doing so, He set aside His own will to obey the Father's. In fact, shortly after Jesus gives this John 17 prayer. He, they reach the Garden of Gethsemane, and just before, right before his betrayal and arrest, what does he say? Jesus says, My Father, this is in Matthew 26, verse 39. He says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he has set aside his will to do the Father's will. So Jesus, in this moment, is obeying the Father. This is why he prays. Jesus is glorifying the Father in his obedience. And at the same time, this will bring glory to himself. So let's move on. I want to take a quick peek at verse 10 of John, uh, John 17, verse 10. Verse 10, Jesus prays, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. What? Jesus is glorified in us pitiful, sin-stained, saturated, uh, dirty people? <laughs> oh my, oh my. How is this possible? How is he glorified in you and I? Well, because Jesus has transformed us from death to life. We are new creatures in Christ. The old has passed, the new has come. We now reflect the excellence of Jesus' glory as we imitate him. Jesus says in verse 22 of John 17, the glory you have given me, I have given to them. And this is the case for every true believer chosen by God. We reflect Jesus' glory now. And Jesus wants us to see his glory personally when we pass from death to life and we see him on his throne in heaven. John 17, 24 says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Yes, we actually bring glory to God. 
people bring him glory. Even unbelievers demonstrate God's glory. As he bestows his common grace on people despite being undeserving sinners. Wayne Grudem, a Bible scholar, he explains that in developing and exercising dominion over the earth, men and women demonstrate and reflect the wisdom of their creator. They demonstrate godlike qualities of skill and moral virtue and authority over the universe and so on and so forth. And though all of these activities are tainted by sinful motives, they nonetheless reflect the excellence of our Creator and therefore bring glory to God, not fully or perfectly, but nonetheless significantly. And yet when ultimately God punishes evil and triumphs over it, the glory of His justice and righteousness will be seen. We are told that in Romans, Romans 9. Grudem says, we'll also see the depth and the riches of God's mercy revealed, for all redeemed sinners will recognize that they too deserve such punishment from God, and they have avoided it only by God's grace through Jesus Christ. So our purpose then is to reflect God's glory. That's a high calling, is it not? Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Shorter Cas- I can't say it. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, it puts it this way: that our uh, it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is our purpose. And so, how do you and I glorify God if His glory is given by the Father? Well, look at verses two, three, and four. In John 17, Jesus prays for the Father to glorify him so that he may glorify the Father. And then comes the reason Jesus prays for this. He says in verse 2, he says, Since you, the Father, have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. So by receiving and trusting in his goodness to forgive your sin and grant you eternal life, you glorify God. By obeying his commands and demands, by loving him and loving others, you glorify God. By forgiving others as Christ forgives you, you bring God glory. By submitting to his ways, even when you are tempted, by denying yourself, taking up the cross, so to speak, as Jesus did, you bring glory to God. This glory, as we know, it stems solely from Jesus' work on the cross. His goal was to do the work necessary to redeem every person the Father gives him, past, present, future. And that work was his ministry and teaching, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. Jesus obeyed in every part perfectly. And so as he says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And when we take hold of that work, the pure grace of God who did the work for us, we are changed completely from the inside out 
We are born again. We're, we're born anew. We're taken out of, out of the world's ways and we become truly His. And this is evident in our lives. We aren't the same. We don't desire the same things. We desire His righteousness more, even more so than our happiness. It's a miracle. I think the Apostle Paul sums it up well in 2 Corinthians 4 when he writes about the grace of God raising us just as he did with Jesus to bring us into the presence of Christ. This increases our gratitude and this in turn gives God glory. Paul writes in verse 16, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then Paul adds in Romans 8, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So in closing, I want to take a very quick peek at verse 6 in John 17. We'll cover more of this next Sunday. But here, I just want to show that Jesus says the believers given to him by the Father have kept your word. And this is a key to knowing whether we belong to God or whether we belong to the world. Do we love the word of God? Do we love God? Do we keep his word? Do we trust the word of God? That is a point for your reflection as we go through our day by day. Do I love the Word of God? Do I love God's Word? Do I long for it? Do I long to know His truths? Theologian James M. Hamilton, Jr., he asks, what shall our response be to these questions, to this reflection? He asks, do we resonate with Peter's statement that only Jesus has the words of eternal life? Do we know the word as a light for our path, hope for our despair, strength for our weakness, help in our time of need, correction for our wrongs, and joy greater than all of our sorrow? What a blessing to have God's word. Amen. And to this, I would just add, what a blessing not just to have God's Word, but to know Him, the Word, capital W, made flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord and our Savior, who gave up His life for ours, then secured the path to eternal life and offers it to us as a free gift to the Son the Father, and the Holy Spirit, one almighty God in three persons, be all glory, honor, and praise.
All glory is due his name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.